Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the show, welcome to the show. Um, yeah, I got a debate breakdown for you today. I was considering whether or not to actually do the debate breakdown, and um, the decision indeed was, yes, we are doing the debate breakdown. I do have some other stories as well, a little bit later on in the show. Um, we will get to them. So it is a busy one today. I'd be lying to you guys if I said I wasn't late, very late, with my prep and with finally getting on air. I might be a little bit out of breath. That's because I'm rushing. Um, Okay, so I will, uh, apart from from the debate breakdown, later on in the show, we have um, the coronavirus. Trump and Mike Pence are uh, are trying to figure out how to deal with it, and of course they're a bunch of idiots, and it's not going well. <laughs> we have uh, Project Veritas, which is that right wing group, got an ABC reporter fired, which was totally unfair. It was a ha- hatchet job. Um, then we also have senior congressional Democratic leadership um, approached by a well known mega donor who basically says, like, all right, you guys have to take down Bernie Sanders. And um, later on, there was a a bombshell article that dropped last night, basically about how Joe Biden is not even really campaigning for president. He has campaigned in, like, none of the Super Tuesday states, which is just beyond ridiculous. That's, uh, That's, like, unheard of. So after South Carolina, he might be Dunskies to the max. So, like I said, busy show. Without further ado, let's get started, and I'll do that with the, uh, you know, the winners and losers of the debate.
So we had the South Carolina Democratic debate on CBS on Tuesday night, and it was a mess. If I'm not mistaken, the previous two debates I referred to as uh, probably the best debates, in my opinion. Uh, This last one was by far and away the worst debate. So the reason for that is pretty simple. Um, Everybody was desperate. Everybody, of course, but the front runner was desperate. And uh, it was obvious. It was clear. It came through. There are no two ways about it. And um, there really aren't too many winners of the night. I would say it's mostly losers. I mean, first of all, the losers, you got to go moderators because the moderators just lost all control of that debate. And anybody watching was, you know, thinking like, hey, could you make them fall in line, please? So moderators are probably the number one loser. And then uh, of the candidates, Probably the two biggest losers are Tom Steyer-Steyer, or as Corin calls him, Tom Sawyer, who just kind of like, you know, started blending in with the background, and people forgot he was there, and probably forgot his name while he was standing on stage. Um, And then also, it just hit me the other night, uh, Mayor Pete is the Democratic Marco Rubio. That's what he is. Mayor Pete is the Democratic Marco Rubio. And... That was apparent. He was, just, he was just really grating on the nerves during this debate. And you could tell that his advisors told him beforehand, hey, man, you're not doing well in the upcoming states in the polling. So you have to, you know, you have to make a name for yourself here. You have to plant a flag. You have to make a statement. And he goes out there, and all he does is filibuster people all day long. He's got a standard talking points, and he just tried to bulldoze everybody and just plow ahead. There were multiple different occasions where he would jump in and then he would just go. And it was one of those things where everybody watching it could sense that the timing was off, could sense that he had no business jumping into the conversation, the back and forth happening between other candidates at those uh, given points in time. And it was just so unappealing. There was something about it that was just so desperate and hacky. And I, I think it's not just me who had that feeling. I think it was most people. There's one point where even somebody in the audience screamed and told him, told him to shut up because he kept filibustering. He kept jumping in at random times and it was just really obnoxious. So um, honestly, his campaign at this point is dead in the water. He's going nowhere from here on out. It's, you know, nothingsville for Mayor Pete. Um, those were the two biggest losers. And then everybody else on stage just kind of was treading the water, I'd say. And then here are the two biggest winners, in my opinion. Now, this is interesting. It's an interesting dynamic. And actually, it's not just me. The snap polls taken after the debate showed this as well. The two biggest winners are Bernie and Biden, believe it or not. So they both, you know, they're winners, but they didn't have their best nights. Bernie, they just kept piling on him relentlessly over and over with the same hacky stuff. How are you going to pay for it? How are you going to pay for it? How are you going to pay for it? Oh, my God, you said some positive words about Cuba. Oh, my God, Cuba, 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 Cuba. And what they did is they would hit him and hit him and hit him, and then, like, the moderators wouldn't let him respond to each individual attack. So he would just have to try to get a word in edgewise when he could. And when he did get a word in, he was, you know, did a pretty good job at beating back the attacks on him. But it still wasn't fair because... It was very lopsided in how they were addressed. And, you know, he didn't get the, the chance to respond to each individual attack, so it was a little messed up in that respect. Now, Biden, his downside was there were like four times that 
he would be giving an answer, and then he'd stop and, and start whining about the time he was allotted. And, oh, everybody else goes over. Now, why do I even bother to follow the rules? And, but he did it. Like, if you do that once, it could come across looking like kind of macho and like, you know, you're controlling the stage. Twice, okay, you're going, it's, you're on the borderline now where it's not a good look. Three or four times, and he may have even done it five times, and it's like, bro, come on, man. Instead of complaining about the time every time you give an answer, how about if we add up all the time that you complained about your lack of time, that right there is like a minute and 30 seconds. Use that. (laughs) Talk in that time frame. What's wrong with you? So even though Bernie and Biden were the winners, because outside of those two things, they had pretty good nights, um, they did have moments where it was like, you know, they didn't do too well. But the bottom line is, Bernie came into the debate a giant frontrunner, and nobody really put a dent in that. And, you know, I think sometimes as a Bernie supporter, I'm a little too harsh on him. And I was thinking about this the other day. You know, Bernie won Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada. And uh, the polls are showing, actually, now that he will likely lose South Carolina to Biden. That's what the polling shows. And, like, I was thinking about it, and that, that makes me sad. But at the same time, it's like, Donald Trump only won 41 states, or I should say 41 contests, because, uh, you know, you, you have to include U.S. territories and whatnot in there. It's not just the states that vote. But uh, Ted Cruz won 11. Marco Rubio won three. John Kasich won one. So even Trump, and he was relatively dominant in 2016, um, he still lost a decent number of contests. Let's see. What's the math on that? 11 plus three plus one. That's 15. Um, so he lost 15 contests. So, you know, if Bernie went, loses South Carolina, that's not the end of the world. But bottom line is he went into that debate a giant front runner, and he goes out still a front runner. They tried to take his crown, but it didn't work because I think, for the most part, the attacks were so desperate and hacky that even your casual viewer looked at it and was like, mm, y'all seem kind of desperate and hacky. So, um, you know, I, I don't foresee much change after this debate, but according to the, um, the snap polls, Bernie got, I think, 45% said he won. Biden was 43%, so right behind him, and then everybody else like, was kind of fell way back. So it was Bernie and Biden were the two winners. And um, the unfortunate thing is, it is true that there was a new round of polling that came out of South Carolina, and there was a brief moment where Bernie was like tied with uh, Biden in South Carolina, But now the polls show Biden back to having a pretty big lead in South Carolina. Now, again, that's not the end of the world because Biden has put a lot of resources and a lot of time into South Carolina. Um, Now, on Super Tuesday, that's a totally different story. Super Tuesday happens two days after South Carolina. And Biden is depending on a South Carolina bump to carry him on Super Tuesday. But the problem is Biden has no organization in any of the Super Tuesday states. In fact, Last time he campaigned in a Super Tuesday state was over a month ago. He has one office in California. To put that in perspective, Bernie has 23. So he's kind of being ridiculous here. And even if he wins South Carolina, we'll immediately get a slap in the face right after on Super Tuesday. But, um, yeah, so the South Carolina debate was a complete and utter mess. Um, I had to watch it twice for you guys, as I always have to do to get the specific clips that I want to discuss. But it was something else, man. Like, we could have just done completely without that debate. It was not, it wasn't worth our time. It was nothing but a bunch of desperate hacks, fear-mongering about Cuba and how you're going to pay for it and stuff like that. 
And um, they came for Bernie's crown, and they failed at getting it. And that's the upside of this. But um, at least according to the polls right now, it looks like he will lose in South Carolina. If he could keep it relatively close, you know, that, that would be good, because at least that impacts the narrative moving forward. But I don't think... Even if Biden wins big in South Carolina, I don't think the two-day media bump is going to be enough to carry him at all in the Super Tuesday states because he's way behind in the polling in virtually all the Super Tuesday states. So anyway, uh, there's your breakdown. And I got to be honest with you guys, I'm getting a little sick and tired of these debates and I kind of want them to stop. Next, next. Got some specific clips for you. Bernie Sanders was under attack the entire debate the other night in South Carolina, but uh, I think he did a relatively good job battling the desperation from the other candidates. Senator Sanders, the cost of your agenda. Yesterday, you released information about how you will pay for your major proposals, but not all of your details are clear. You proposed more than $50 trillion in new spending. You said Medicare for all will cost $30 trillion. But you can only explain how you'll pay for just about half of that. Can you do the math for the rest of us? How many hours do you have? The answer that's, that's is the problem. problem. No, that's not the problem. All right, let's talk about Medicare for all. I'm sure you're familiar with a new study that just came out of Yale University, published in Lancet Magazine, one of the prestigious medical journals in the world. You know what it said? Medicare for all will lower health care costs in this country by $450 billion a year and save 68 thousand lives of people who otherwise would have died. What we need to do is to do what every other major country on earth does, guarantee health care to all people, not have thousands of separate insurance plans, which are costing us some $500 billion a year to administer. Our plan, we have, we have laid out options all over the place. One of the options is the 7.5% payroll tax on employers, which will save them substantial sums of money. No, the math does not add up. In fact, just on 60 Minutes uh, this weekend, he said he wasn't going to rattle through the nickels and the dimes. Well, let me tell you how many nickels and dimes we're talking about. Nearly $60 trillion. Do you know how much that is for all of his programs? That is three times the American economy, not the federal government, the entire American economy. Uh, the Medicare for All plan alone, uh, page 8, clearly says that it will kick 149 million Americans off their current health insurance in four years. That is true. As one prominent Democrat once said, we should pay attention to where the voters of this country are, Bernie. That prominent Democrat was Barack Obama a few months ago, and I think that's what we should do. They are not with you on spending nearly $60 trillion. What I think we should do 
is make things more affordable, nonprofit public option, make sure we're paying for long-term care better, take on the pharmaceuticals like you and I have done together, and do something for the people of America instead of a bunch of broken promises that sound good on bumper stickers. Mr. Sire, Mr. Sire, I think we're talking Mr. about Sire. Sire. Oh, look, first of all, first of all, I think she was talking about my plan, not yours. I think we were right. talking about math, and it doesn't oh, take oh, two hours well, to do the math. Because let's talk about let's what it has about math. Let's talk about let's math. Talk about math. math. Okay, so here's the math. So here's the math. Nobody can I respond to that. Nothing is what will happen. Senator Sanders, you're allowed a quick response, and we would like to hear from you. What the Health and Human Services have said in analyzing health care costs, what Yale, recent Yale study has said is that your program would cost some $50 trillion over a 10-year period. We would continue to pay, in some cases, 10 times more for the same exact prescription drugs. What every study out there, conservative or progressive, says, Medicare for all will save money. He did a good job there, uh, you know, fighting back the attacks. But what's so amazing to me is we're now what? How many debates in? Eight, nine, ten, something like that. And all this time and all this opposition research and all this investment from the various campaigns trying to figure out how to go after Bernie. And this is literally all they could come up with. Oh, my God, Bernie bros. Oh, my God, they're so mean online. And how you going to pay for it? 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 And it's it's just it's the weakest thing I've ever seen in my life. Like you gotta come on, you gotta up your opposition. This is so pathetic. It didn't work. Like okay, even the question from the moderator, Senator Sanders, let's talk about the cost of your agenda. Okay, so this has to be what the forty sixth question on the cost of his agenda, guys. I'm not kidding. I think in literally every single debate. They asked about the cost of his agenda. We got it. He's answered it a thousand times, and every time he gives a substantive answer, and this is what drives me crazy, is they'll ask the question. Bernie will respond substantively. Okay, first of all, here, I released. He did this on CNN the other night. He goes, I knew you were going to ask that question. Here, here's a list of the way I pay for every single thing I'm proposing. Don't even bother asking again. It's all right here. We got a Wall Street transaction tax is how we pay for certain things. We have, you know, a tax on billionaires is how we pay for other things. He's got a list of it. And, oh, okay, cut in this area, in this area, the military budget. We're going to, you know, roll back on our spending for our bloated military budget. We're going to do, um, you know, we're going to stop quantitative easing to the big financial institutions that are screwing the people. We're going to roll back the tax cuts for the top 1%. He pays for all of it. And then instead of listening to his response and then responding to his response, what happens every single time? They go right back and restate the original question. But he answered it! He, how many times do you want him to answer it? He's answered it a thousand times. And you always ignore it and go right back to the same original question. You're begging the question. So it just, it drives me crazy. Like, it comes across so hacky. You look so idiotic. 
Because how many times does he have to address it and give you the exact answer you're looking for, and then you just pretend like he didn't give an answer? It's stunning, man. It really is. Um, and then the other thing that drives me crazy, and this should drive you guys crazy too, is there's this underlying tone of like, well, obviously this stuff isn't possible because it's cost prohibitive to do all these things. And it's like, no, every other developed country has managed to do the things that he's talking about. So the idea that it's like impossible to do, it is empirically, verifiably, provably, factually incorrect to say like, oh no, we can't do it because it just it's, it costs so much. Not true. Not at all true. Not even close to true. So they just ignore all of that stuff because they don't like those proposals. They don't like those plans. They're, a lot of the people on stage and the moderators are you know, part of the corporate wing of the Democratic Party. So they think that, you know, run-of-the-mill social democracy is like communism. Um, and then, so let's look at some of what Klobuchar said there. 149 million Americans will be kicked off of their health care plans. We're getting rid of the mafia that's price gouging you and ripping you off. There's a mafia in between you and your doctor stealing money from you that provides no value. We're getting rid of that mafia. That's a positive thing. Klobuchar wants you to have a choice of which mafia is going to rip you off. Wow, thank you for that wonderful choice, Amy Klobuchar. See, they're so, like, they're, they're so biased towards the status quo. That's what that is. It's a status quo bias. It works like this now, so how could we ever change it? it I don't understand. We're going to change things? Yes, we're going to change things. In the same way that, you know, before women voting, we decided it's a good idea. We have to fight for the right, but let's have women voting. Let's end prohibition. Let's end segregation. Sure, in 1959, you could have a conversation with somebody, and they could be like, ha, ha, you want to end segregation? Ha, 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 how ridiculous. We have it now. And we shouldn't. That's the point. We shouldn't. Uh, oh, guys, I can't. Every day I come out on this show and I have to say the same thing in 4,300 different ways. It's like, when is it going to sink in? But it's not going to, because the whole point is the propaganda. The whole point is to raise doubts. And even that framing of kicking people off of their health insurance. He wants to give everybody in the country full health coverage that's free at the point of service, and you end up paying less money for it in public taxes as opposed to a much larger private tax, which you're paying right now. Oh, my goodness. Um, and then finally, uh, pay attention to where the voters are, is what Klobuchar said, and she was quoting Obama. Well, Amy, I got news for you. The entrance and exit polls in Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada, respectively, in every single one of them, single-payer Medicare for All was overwhelmingly popular. In every single one of those states, you were around 60%, and some it was even higher. So you say we got to go to where the voters are. Great. Nice to know that you're now in favor of Medicare for All, because that's where the voters are. That's what all the polls show now. So are you changing your mind? Oh, no, you're just using a tired talking point, and you're not even up to date on the data on it, or you're pretending like that data doesn't exist. So it's just... Like, what, what she's saying is just not accurate. Oh, the, the voters aren't there yet. But they are. In fact, in those entrance and exit polls, they phrased the question in a way to try to get voters to be against Medicare for All. And the voters were still for Medicare for All. Go look at the way that they phrased it. It was ridiculous. It was something like, do you want to eliminate all private health insurance for a single-payer, government-run health care option? 
Like, they tried to make you scared of it. And still, it was well over 50% of people who were like, yeah, that's what I want. I'm sorry, man, but this is why he's winning. Because everybody around him, those are everything in that conversation was hacky, was disingenuous. I swear, there's going to come a day, I don't know how long in the future, maybe 100 years, maybe 150 years, when I'm gone and you're gone. And people are going to look back at this election, look back at these debates, and it will look like an episode of The Twilight Zone. Because you have the last sane man on earth, Bernie Sanders, trying to fend off attacks in a Democratic debate from all the other candidates who basically are sounding like Republicans. Okay. Mike Bloomberg is about to get destroyed now. Here we go, Mikey. Here we go, Mikey. Mike Blue. Ooh, hold on. I got to change a little something in the graphic. All right, we're good now. We're good now. Here we go. Mike Bloomberg gave us what might be the greatest Freudian slip of all time in the South Carolina debate. And, um, it, you know, it actually might not even be debatable that this is the greatest Freudian slip of all time. I'm ready to declare it officially. <laughs> the debate is over. This is the greatest, greatest Freudian slip of all time. It's not even debatable. on the record. They talked about 40 Democrats. 21 of those were people that I spent $100 million to help elect. <laughs> the, all of the new Democrats that came in and put Nancy Pelosi in charge and gave the Congress the ability to control this president, I, fought, I, I got them. I, fought, I, I got them. I, fought, I, I got them. You bought them. That's what he was saying. I bought them. I bought those Democrats. There you have it. A moment of honesty from Mike Bloomberg. Yeah, I buy politicians. This is what I do. I rig the political process in whatever direction I want to rig it. Now, let me ask you a question. These specific Democrats that he's talking about, are these Democrats who are going to support Medicare for all and free college and a living wage and ending the wars and a Green New Deal and all these wonderful policies legalizing marijuana? No. These are the corporate Democrats. These are the Democrats who are going to side with the Republicans in every issue where the American people are overwhelmingly on the left. So, Mike, here's the thing. We don't want your help. We don't need your help. We don't agree with the candidates that you're shoving down our throats by pumping them up with an endless flow of cash. This is corruption. That's what this is. This is corruption. You bought them. Now, by the way, the other thing is, you know what he doesn't tell you? He also bought Republicans. He actually was very influential in um, funding Senate Republicans to keep the Senate right-leaning. I mean, this should come as a surprise to nobody. This is a dude who was backing in 2004. 2004, he backed George W. Bush. So, I mean, think about how wild that is. After having four years of George W. Bush and illegal wars and torture, he was like, yeah, I'm going to sign up for that again. This is who we're talking about here, man. So he goes up there, he acts like he's some sort of savior. No, you're a corrupt billionaire oligarch, 
and you're trying to make sure the Democratic Party aligns with your values, and your values are authoritarian, elitist, and against what the people want. And we've gone over it before. I don't want to go over it every single time we talk about Mike Bloomberg, but the evidence is overwhelming. I mean, this guy is the worst of the worst. This is a guy who literally banned feeding the homeless in New York City. It used to be the case that you had these bagel stores in New York, in New York City that would give their bagels at the end of the day. They donate them to homeless people. He banned that. Who does that? I'll tell you who does that. An authoritarian elitist. That's who does that. He banned big gulfs as well. I don't think you should have large sodas because obesity is bad and I'm against this. Wouldn't you love, like, if somebody got Mike Bloomberg, hey, we're going to ban your, uh, you know, guilty pleasure, whatever it might be. Oh, do you have a drink at the end of every day? You have some gin or something? Banned. He'd be like, oh, how dare you? But when it's yours, oh, I don't care about you. Ban it. This is a guy who said legalizing weed is, quote, the stupidest thing anybody's ever done. That's what he said. He compared free health care and education to, quote, a free pony. Mocking. Scoffing. He, he uh, vetoed a minimum wage increase in New York City. This is the guy who's supposed to lead the Democratic Party, which is supposed to be the party of the workers. It's, it's embarrassing. And, by the way, a guy like Bloomberg, he would much rather have Trump get a second term than have Bernie Sanders win the election. It's true. So he's as big of a snake as they come, man. And that was the greatest Freudian slip of all time, because that is super true. Yeah, I bought them. I bought those Democrats. That's the problem, Mike. I love how I've seen articles now going after Bernie, because Bernie says, I don't want Mike Bloomberg's money. The article's going after him. Are, are you insane? <laughs> you, have to, you have to be corrupt, because that's part, that's part of the system. That's how we play the game. And that's the problem. That's the problem, is... People in these elitist bubbles, they really don't get it. They really don't understand that everybody sees the game and we're sick of it and we want to change it. And it is the the dumbest take of all to say, hey, that's just how it works. So what are you going to do? We have to continue to be corrupt. We have to continue to represent the the will of corporations and billionaires that ignore the people because that's just the way the game is played. Well, thankfully, we have a candidate that's running now who wants to change the game. Okay, that was without a doubt the greatest Freudian slip of all time. Now we're going to get to Bernie and um, Bloomberg going at it aggressively with each other. Bernie Sanders and Mike Bloomberg went at it pretty aggressively at the debate on, uh, on Tuesday night. Watch this. has a solid and strong and enthusiastic base of support. Problem is, they're all billionaires. Now, if you look... On the other hand, of the last 50 polls that have been done nationally, Mr. Bloomberg, I beat Trump 47 of those 50 times. If you look at battleground states like Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania polling judges, but the polls on the election, I beat Trump. And if you want to beat Trump, what you're going to need is an unprecedented grassroots movement of black and white and Latino, Native American and Asian 
people who are standing up and fighting for and, justice. And anybody That's what in, our can anybody is in this about. room imagine moderate Republicans going over and voting for him? And Absolutely. you have to do that, you can't win. The answer to that question is yes. Not only can I imagine it, it already happened. So just so you understand, guys, in 2016, Bernie versus Hillary, Bernie won the self-described moderates and conservatives. The voters who self-described as moderate and conservative picked Bernie Sanders over Hillary Clinton by wide margins. Now, you might say, well, that's 2016. Things probably changed from the entrance and exit polls. I remember specifically the entrance polls from Nevada. Um, Bernie absolutely crushed with self-described moderate and conservative voters. So the answer to your question, Mike, is yes, I can imagine that, and it's already happened. Here's what I can't imagine. You winning a general election by any stretch of the imagination. And in fact, if I was on that debate stage and he was coming after me like, could you imagine this guy uh, winning over moderate Republican voters? My response to him would have been, you can't even win over Democratic voters. Are you kidding me? You bought your way on the stage. $300,000 donation to the DNC got them to change the rules. That's why you're standing there, because you're a corrupt oligarch. So um, it's just a terrible point from him. He doesn't, like... He really doesn't understand the way politics works. He thinks like, oh, if you just run a Democrat who sounds like a Republican, they'll automatically win. Well, if that was the case, we already have a President Hillary Clinton now, wouldn't we? Moderates have r- repeatedly got wiped out, man. And we've spoken about this before. I've given you know, a lot of evidence to this effect. But John Kerry lost to George W. Bush in 2004. Imagine losing to George W. Bush in 2004. It's pathetic because he ran as Bush light. He ran as Republican light. The Hillary Clinton example, losing 1,000 seats under Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. It wasn't until this left-wing wave in the last election that Democrats did well. So, you know, go away, man. Go away. It's so obnoxious. You got this guy who thinks he can control the narrative and control the process because he's a multi-billionaire. And basically he has been doing that. But Bernie Sanders' responses there were awesome. So he said... Listen, the polls show I beat Trump. 47 of the last 50 polls show I beat Trump. I'm doing better than anybody else on stage here up against Trump. I am the most electable. And one of the main reasons for that, guys, is Bernie's best states are the Rust Belt states. He's winning in every single Rust Belt state uh, in the polls right now in the primary. So you can't say he's the weakest. It is objectively untrue. He's the strongest, according to the evidence that we have right now. Now, it's subject to change like anything else, but right now that's crystal clear. So, you know, he says, poll show I beat Trump. Correct. And then the other point is, and he's been making this a lot, is I'm the movement candidate. The only way you beat Trump is with a movement. I'm the only movement candidate on this stage. You guys are all, you know, weirdos tiptoeing and following the rule book of how you think a politician should act to get elected. And that's why, you know, who shows up to your rallies? Nobody. Nobody you're not movement candidates. You're the safe option that generates no excitement. And in fact, it'd be the opposite of safe. You'd get your asses handed to you in a general election. Bloomberg would get destroyed by Trump. Oh my God, he would get obliterated. Um, And then finally, at the beginning, when Bernie basically said like, yeah, sure, you know, you got support. It's from billionaires. You heard the booing in the audience. Guys, 
the DNC packed this room. Now, you might say, oh, come on, Kyle, it's conspiracy theory. No, you know how much it costs to get in that room? About $2,000 per ticket. You're not going to have somebody who's, you know, part of the Fight for 15 movement in there or a union worker, you know, or somebody who's struggling to pay the medical bills. They're not going to be in that room. That room is full of Democratic elites. When you say to somebody like Mike Bloomberg, yeah, you have support. It's from billionaires. That's just true. He, and he bought the little support he has through his barrage of misleading ads where he pretends like Obama endorsed him, even though he didn't. So Bernie saying that is accurate. And then the audience booed. Because the audience is corrupt. The audience are full of, you know, DNC lobbyists and special interests. And by the way, I was really hoping that he would point that out. There's another point. I don't know if we have it in our clips, but there's another point where they're going after Bernie on Cuba and Bernie schooling them on Cuba. And Bernie points out the fact that Obama said the exact same thing he did. That, hey, Cuba has problems. They're authoritarian. Their economy is not the best. But they did increase literacy to 99% or over 99%. So, you know, they taught people to read, and that's a positive thing. The audience starts booing him. And Bernie goes, really? Really? Like, you're going to boo a fact? That's what you're going to do. You're going to boo a fact. And he brings up the Obama thing, and they boo. He's like, it's true. It's true. What do you want me to tell you? So I wish that Bernie did an okay job. He handled it well. But this reminded me of in 2016. This happened with Trump, too. There was one of the debates where the RNC did the same thing. They packed the room with all the high-dollar donors, and they were booing Trump relentlessly. And at one point, he stopped. He pointed at the audience. He goes, you see all them right there? That's all Jeb's special interests and donors and lobbyists right there. I'm not taking money from those lobbyists. They're all corrupt. Trump went on to handily win that debate. Handily win that debate, and we all know what happened after that. So, yeah, Bernie should lean into that, lean into the criticism of the Democratic establishment, the media, the corrupt audience in this case. So um, I hate watching... I hated watching this debate because it just it was so desperate and unfair and hacky. But the good news is most people saw that. And when they saw that, they said, oh, Bernie's the guy. Because, again, the only polls we have, the snap polls from after the debate, show him winning, Bernie winning. So they're trying. They're trying to take that crown, but it ain't working. Okay, next. Michael Bloomberg did some flip-flopping and fear-mongering on the issue of weed, and you're going to see that as well as a real stark contrast with Bernie Sanders because he hops in and provides a great substantive policy answer about the issue of legalization. Look, the first thing you do is we should not make this a criminal thing if you have a small amount. For dealers, yes. But for the average person, no, and you should expunge the records of those that got caught up in this before. Number two, we're not going to take it away from states that have already done it. But number three, you should listen to the scientists and the doctors. They say go very slowly. They haven't done enough research, and the evidence so far is worrisome before we get all our kids, particularly kids in their late teens, boys even more than girls, well, this may be damaging their brains. Until we know the science, it's just nonsensical to push ahead. But whatever, the cat's out of the bag. So some states have it. You're not going to take it away. Get rid of the, de- decriminalize the, uh, okay. the possession. Senator Sanders, you were in the All right, look, you're right. <laughs> we have a criminal justice system today 
that is not only broken, it is racist, got more people in jail than any other country on earth, including China. And one of the reasons for that is a horrific war on drugs. So I do believe that on day one, we will change the Federal Controlled Substance Act, which, if you can believe it, now equates heroin with marijuana. That's insane. We're going to take marijuana out of that and effectively legalize marijuana in every state in the country. What we are also going to do is move to expunge the records of those people who are arrested for possession of marijuana. And I'll tell you what else we're going to do. We're going to provide help to the African-American, Latino, Native American community to start businesses to sell legal marijuana rather than let a few corporations control the legalized marijuana market. All right, Senator. That was amazing, seeing the difference between those two candidates. So Bernie has said that on day one of his administration, he'll legalize marijuana in all 50 states. He has the ability to do that because all you have to do is really take uh, marijuana off that list of um, controlled substances. Right now it's Schedule 1. It's up there with heroin and the worst substances. And he's like, yeah, I'll just take it off, and it will effectively be legalized in all 50 states on day one. If you care about this issue, it's a no-brainer. Because he's on day one, we're talking about here. And I believe him. You know, I don't believe a lot of the other politicians, even when they talk a decent game on it, and they say, oh, yeah, I'm for legalization or whatever. Well, you have the ability to legalize it on day one as president, so maybe you should, you know, do that. And I believe he will do that. Um, he's also talking about expunging the record of everybody who's been guilty of a nonviolent drug offense. That's wonderful. I have full faith and confidence he'll basically do everything he can to free all the nonviolent drug offenders um, that he can. Um, and I love the idea of the communities that were most affected by this almost kind of get first dibs in the legal marketplace. I mean, that makes sense to me. That does, because it is the case that, uh, you know, the evidence shows that the drug war has been used disproportionately against communities of color. That's a fact. Uh, apparently, white people are more likely to sell drugs, but black people are more likely to get arrested for selling drugs. Um, and we all know the statistic about black people and white people use drugs at a similar rate, but black people are arrested for it about four times more often. So, you know, I think that's an interesting, um, you know, little spin on exactly how you legalize, tax, and regulate. But what's crystal clear is he's for legalizing, taxing, and regulating. And I agree with him on that completely. Now, he... Um, to go, let's go to Mike Bloomberg. So Mike Bloomberg says, well, don't make it a criminal thing, but for dealers, yes. Okay, so then under your ideal system, you just said we're not going to touch the states that have already legalized it. Okay, so you could theoretically have people selling legally in California and all the other states where it's legal, and then you go to states where it's not legal, and you can have some you know, poor 23-year-old black kid who gets thrown in prison because he deals. That just perpetuates the problem, man. <laughs> that just perpetuates the problem. You got a business over here that's perfectly legal and above board. You got, they got to sell drugs here in an underground way, and you're going to criminalize the dealers who sell in those states. No. Legalize, tax, and regulate across the board, across the entire country, full stop. So it's just it's such a weaselly position to take. Yeah, okay, I guess don't make it a criminal thing. But for the dealers, yeah, go after the dealers. If it's not a criminal thing, then it shouldn't be a problem. What a weird, gross middle ground that's totally devoid of any principles. 
Um, and then he says, uh, evidence is worrisome for kids. Well, that's interesting. Uh, I guess it's a good thing we're not talking about legalizing it for freaking kids then. I, you know, I can't, ugh, I can't stand this stuff, man. In the same way that we have alcohol legal, but you have to be over 21 to consume alcohol, this is the same thing with marijuana. Nobody's saying, hey, legalize it and give some to your toddler. That's not happening. People are saying, hey, legalize it, whatever the age is. I don't know what the debate is, 16, 18, 21, whatever the hell it might be. Um, but, like, that's the debate. That's the discussion. He changes the discussion to make it look like, oh, I'm the reasonable one. So I'm saying kids shouldn't have it. Everybody's saying kids shouldn't have it. That doesn't mean adults shouldn't be able to have it. it you know, it really drives me crazy. And he does the whole science thing. Science shows, yeah, you know what else science shows? Alcohol is absolutely terrible for you. It's way worse than weed is. Should we ban alcohol for everybody? Or should we have it where it's legal in some states but illegal in other states? And if you sell alcohol in certain states, you should be locked up? No. He doesn't believe in personal freedom. Listen, I've spoken about this on the show before. Um, I've uh, called myself, there's a couple labels I've used politically, but populist left is one. Another one I like is libertarian left. Libertarian refers to social issues. On social issues, I just, I'm in favor of taking a hands-off approach and you do whatever you want with your private life. And Michael Bloomberg is very clearly not that. He's not a libertarian leftist. He's certainly not a leftist. This is why I call him an authoritarian elitist. I think that's the best description for him. Because on social issues, he's completely authoritarian. He is. Banning big gulps, saying you can't freaking sell bagels or give bagels to homeless people. Stuff like this, you know, still trying to say that, you know, we should have marijuana illegal. You can't deal it. He wants to control your life, micromanage your life on social issues. That's so, that's the definition of authoritarian. And the elitist part is how he is on economic stuff. He thinks that, you know, he's a billionaire because of, we live in a meritocracy and he's just that much more brilliant than everybody else. And he works that much harder than everybody else. And he thinks, you know, this council of uh, billionaires should kind of control everything and, and dictate the market and, um, that is a elitist position. He doesn't believe in small-D democracy and people making their own choices and, and workers being more involved, and he doesn't believe in that. So that's why I call him an authoritarian elitist, man. You see, this is another great example of it um, with this back and forth, because he's still using marijuana talking points from, like, 1998. Oh. All right, now let's talk about foreign policy a little bit. Bernie schooled the other candidates on the issue of U.S. foreign policy during the debate. Um, He dropped a devastating line that you're going to see in the middle here, but take note, this entire back and forth is them trying to gang up on him over totally reasonable comments that he made about Cuba. But pay attention because you'll catch the line that's just a, absolute destruction. It's a power bomb of everybody on stage and they don't know how to deal with it. 
You've praised the Chinese Communist Party for lifting more people out of extreme poverty than any other country. You also have a track record of expressing sympathy for socialist governments in Cuba and in Nicaragua. Can Americans trust that a democratic socialist president will not give authoritarians a free pass? I have opposed authoritarianism all over the world, and I was really amazed at what Mayor Bloomberg just said a moment ago. He said that the Chinese government is responsive to the Politburo. But who the hell is the Politburo responsive to? Who elects the Politburo? You got a real dictatorship there? Of course you have a dictatorship in Cuba. What I said is what Barack Obama said in terms of Cuba, that Cuba made progress on education. Yes, I think. Really? Really? Yes, no, because there's no comparison. What Barack Obama Barack said Obama is they made great progress on education and health care. That was Barack Obama. I occasionally, Barack Obama. Excuse me. Occasionally, it might be a good idea to be honest about American foreign policy. And that includes the fact that America has overthrown governments all over the world, in Chile, in Guatemala, in Iran, and when dictatorships, whether it is the Chinese or the Cubans, do something good, you acknowledge that. But you don't have trade love letters. It's 2020. Barack Obama was abroad. He was in a town meeting. He did not in any way suggest that there was anything positive about the Cuban government. He acknowledged that they did increase life expectancy, but he went on and condemned the dictatorship. He went on and condemned the people who, in fact, had run that committee. He also made sure to make it clear, and by the way, I called to make sure that I was prepared to, I, was, I never say minor my private conversation with, but the fact of the matter is, he, in fact, did not did not, has never embraced an authoritarian regime, and does not now. This man said that, in fact, he thought it was, he did not condemn what that they did. That is untrue, categorically untrue. What, what did you tell them? Well, I have condemned the authoritarianism, whether it is the people in Saudi Arabia, that the United States government has Cuba, Nicaragua. Cuba, Nicaragua. Authoritarianism of any stripe is bad. But that is different than saying that governments occasionally do things that are good. What do you think Obama said? Okay, I'm going to break something. <laughs> like, why must we insist on having conversations like we're babies? Why are we not allowed to have nuance involved in our conversations? So... You know, this isn't difficult. This isn't even close to hard. Bernie has said repeatedly, yes, these are authoritarian governments. I condemn them. I don't like them. You know, uh, in many instances, they crack down on a free press, and there is no such thing as a free press. Um, there's uh, way too much control of people's lives. They micromanage their lives. Um, the economy is in, is in shambles for a variety of reasons. And I condemn them. That's not okay. That's not good. However, let's just give credit where credit is due. Uh, they took, I forget how low the literacy rate was. I, I would guess around 50%, maybe lower. And then um, when Castro came into power, they did a literacy program, and it got above 99% literacy. They have a higher liter literacy rate than the United States. So actually, hold on. I don't know if that's true. Let me look that up as I'm talking to you guys right now because I know that people rightly should be um, 
you know, making sure all the facts are correct. Cuba literacy rate, let's see. Cuba literacy rate by its completion, we're taught the national literacy rate to 96%. Okay, so there's contradictory information. It was 99 I read in one um, article. This one says 96%, and the source of that is, well, that's Wikipedia. Mm, <laughs> I used to say Wikipedia is a perfectly legitimate source. After some recent stuff that we'll get into on in a later date, I'm not so sure that's the case. Um, United States literacy rate. Literacy rate. Okay. Okay, so maybe it's incorrect. Maybe they don't we don't have maybe Cuba does not have a higher literacy rate than the United States, but Cuba took their literacy rate from like around fifty percent to about ninety six percent. And uh that's a giant accomplishment. So let me start that over because I want to make sure all the facts are correct and I don't want to mislead anybody about anything. Okay, let's do this. I'm so annoyed that we have conversations like babies, like children. Um, nuance is important in conversations, and they just simply don't allow nuance. On that debate stage, nuance is not allowed. So, yes, Cuba uh, you know, is an authoritarian government. They do crackdowns on the media. There is no free press. That's totally inexcusable. I'm a deep believer in free speech. Bernie Sanders is a deep believer in free speech. And he's spoken about this endlessly. He even defended Ann Coulter when there were riots, when they were trying to get her to not speak somewhere at some college, okay? But it is also true they did a tremendous job increasing literacy. They had a very low literacy rate, and then Castro came into power, and he got it above 95%. I mean, that's – you can pretend like that didn't happen, but then you're being silly. Um, you know, by the same token, Cuba developed a lung cancer vaccine. Now, are we not allowed to come out here and say, good job. It's a good thing that you developed a lung cancer vaccine um, because that will save lives. Are we not allowed to say that because everything that's associated with Cuba is by definition bad? And if you utter any positive word at all, that means you're sympathetic to the government? No, that's ridiculous. Like, I could say very positive, kind things about the United States government. I, could, I love the First Amendment in the U.S. Constitution. I think it's wonderful. Free speech is so important. Um, I love uh, the Civil Rights Movement and the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. I think that's wonderful. Uh, I love the New Deal. See, I'm saying positive things about the U.S., but you know what? We also shouldn't have done the Iraq War, which killed minimum 200,000 uh, innocent civilians. We shouldn't have done torture. We shouldn't have Guantanamo Bay open, you know, where we torture people. So you can't just say, oh, he thinks America's bad. Or, oh, he thinks America's good. Those are not accurate summaries of the conversation we're having here because it is nuanced. We're having a nuanced conversation. But what they want to do is ignore what Bernie's actually saying and go, ah, see, he loves Fidel Castro. That's not what he said. He said literacy is a good thing. <laughs> see, this is what I mean. He gets these other Democrats to, you know, defend absurd things, to take absurd positions. And look at Biden's tortured attempt to try to say, oh, no, 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 Barack Obama never did that. There's literally video of Barack Obama saying almost exactly what Bernie Sanders said. It is effectively the same thing. They said, you know, hey, you got to give credit. They made giant advancements in healthcare and giant advancements when it comes to literacy. 
but here's a bunch of problems that still need to be fixed. And it was Barack Obama who, this is one of the best things he did, was he started to open up relations with Cuba and move away from our, you know, the embargo and the standoffish way that we treated them. And he was right about that. He was correct to do that. Now, the Republicans are reversing it, but Obama was correct to do that. Is Obama a Cuba sympathizer, uh, you know, a Castro sympathizer, because he decided, let's not be standoffish with them anymore. Let's end the embargo. Let's open up lines of communication. Let's move in a more peaceful direction. No, that's the right thing to do. See, this is what you do when you have no argument, when you don't have anything noteworthy, substantive, to say against Bernie, you just pretend he has positions that he doesn't have and he says things that he didn't say and, uh, and you attack those things. And I love the, the thing he threw in there in the middle because it really flips all this, this whole conversation on its head. Oh my God, why don't you condemn these governments? These governments do really bad things. He's like, okay, number one, I do condemn them. Number two, We've overthrown governments all around the world, all around the world. So should we, oh, let's do nothing but condemn America. Let's have a non-nuanced conversation about that. No. See, for us, they allow for us, for the U.S., oh, allow all the nuance in the world or just flat out ignore all the bad things we did. But for other countries, ones that are official state enemies, oh, bad. Oh, you're only allowed to say they're bad, bad. Bad, not good, authoritarian, evil, wrong, terrible. And the funny thing is, people have pointed this out. Weird. It's only, they only reserve this kind of hatred and anger for uh, left authoritarian governments. They never do it for right authoritarian governments. He brought up Saudi Arabia. Bernie brought up Saudi Arabia. They're doing a genocide right now in Yemen, right this second, with our weapons, with our tax money. We're allies with them. They're on the freaking UN Human Rights Panel as they're committing a genocide. They behead people for sorcery and witchcraft and apostasy. They have political prisoners. They want to kill the women who protested to get the right to drive. And, you know, are, nobody on stage says a bad word except Bernie. Nobody on stage is willing to say a bad word about Saudi Arabia because they're our allies and they're our oil buddy. Do you see how the game is rigged, man? Oh, you said the mean things, positive things about the mean dictators in Latin America, and that's bad. You only say bad things about them. And he's like, actually, no, I've condemned them as well, but given them credit where they deserve it. And also, let's have a conversation about these people who we support, who are objectively more evil, more evil, very comfortable saying the Saudi government is way worse than the Cuban government. Very comfortable saying that. No, shh. Don't say anything. Shh. I hate this shit, man. I really do. It, it drives me crazy. It drives me crazy. Bernie is correct. He's correct about what he said about Cuba. Obama was correct about what he said about Cuba. And Obama was correct in what he did in regards to Cuba. And Bernie's correct about what we've done with our foreign policy and how we've overthrown people. If these guys had any objective standards, you know what they would say? Hey, maybe we should do, uh, maybe somebody should do regime change against us in the U.S. Because as Chomsky points out, every government in the U.S., every president post-World War II, if the Nuremberg laws were upheld, they'd be hanged. So if they really had objective standards, they'd be like, oh, it's time to do regime change here. Because we violate international law all the time. We're the international bully and thug all the time. But of course, they'd never say that. Like I said, you got a stage full of children, and then there's Bernie Sanders saying obvious things, and they object to the obvious things.
Now, we are going to take a break, and then when we come back, I got a lot more for you, and you're not going to want to miss it. So when we come back, I got Mayor Pete filibustering. It's the most annoying video you've ever seen, and then Bernie calls out the corrupt DNC. Don't go anywhere. Do not miss it. We have a great rest of the show. Stay right there.
right, bitches. We back. We are back. Okay. We continue. And, um... We're going to go to Mayor Pete, who gave us one of the smarmiest debate moments of all time. Mayor Pete absolutely shattered the record for filibuster, filibustering during a debate. So watch him here absolutely refuse to let Bernie get a word in. survive or succeed, and they're certainly not going to win by reliving the Cold War. And we're not going to win these critical, critical House and Senate races if people in those races have to explain why the nominee of the Democratic Party is telling people to look at the bright side of the Castro regime. Okay. We've got to be a lot smarter about this. Let us be clear. When we think health care for all, Pete, is some kind of radical communist idea. Do we think raising the minimum wage to a living wage? Do we think building the millions of units of affordable housing? Do we think raising taxes on billionaires is a radical idea? Do we think criminal justice reform is a radical idea? The things you just said are immigration reports. The truth is, American people are talking about agenda. Right. That is why I am beating Trump in virtually every poll that I've done and why I will defeat him. We've got to open this up. Right. Universal right. health care. Right. 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 Donald Trump, right. Bernie. 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 I hate that so much. Oh, I hate that so much. Oh, that gets under my skin. So here's my guess as to what the backstory is to this here. Pete in the upcoming states is doing horribly. He invested, uh, you know, a lot of resources into Iowa. And it paid off to some extent. There's no doubt about that. But he was kind of hoping for a springboard effect. Like, oh, okay, so if I win Iowa, then it's like, bam, I could win New Hampshire because that happens, you know, pretty soon after and I'll get the positive press from Iowa. And then if I win New Hampshire, then boom, I'll win Nevada because it's just let me roll on, you know, the, uh, the positive press. And he hit a wall. He hit a wall because, I mean, I would argue he's also just not that great of a candidate. So he hit a wall for that reason. But also he really doesn't have a lot of support among people of color and the states that are upcoming have a lot more people of color. And like Nevada, for example, has a decent number of people of color and Pete did terribly there. So he's going to hit a wall coming up in South Carolina. And then on super Tuesday, he's not polling well in these states. And so he needs to make something happen because he ain't going to go anywhere. He needs to make something happen. 
So my guess is this is when, you know, his staffers behind the scene tell him going into this debate, bro, listen, you have to make a statement. You have to make a name for yourself. You have to plant a flag. You have to because you're going you're gonna to lose and you're going to lose quickly if you don't make something happen. So he goes out there and he does exactly what you just saw right there. And he's asserting himself. He's being aggressive. But really, fundamentally, what happened is he's filibustering. And that's the longest filibuster I've ever seen in my entire life on a debate stage. And that's kind of embarrassing and kind of shameful. Because Bernie clearly asked a rhetorical question and was continuing on in a line of things he was going to say. And people were just like, no, actually, wait, let's talk about that. And let me just keep talking here as you're obviously not done making your point, And I should stop and let you finish making your point. But I'm going to keep being really annoying and keep jumping in and keep trying to stop people from hearing your point. And anyway, do people like me? Do you guys like me? No, man, you look really terrible. I hate to break it to you. So I don't think that worked. I think he bombed the night. I think aside from uh, Tom Steyer, Steyer, he was the worst on stage. Um in fact, Bloomberg did better than uh, than Tom Steyer, Steyer Sawyer, and uh, and Mayor Pete. But whatever the strategy was, whatever you were trying to do, I can pretty much guarantee you it didn't work, and you look like a giant prick. Okay, next. Last one on the debate. Last one on the debate. Here we go. So after the debate, Bernie Sanders hit back at the corrupt DNC for effectively packing the audience. Tell me about a moment that we saw where it seemed like you were almost arguing with the crowd or debating with the crowd at one point. What was that about? Okay, that's an interesting question. Do you know how much money it costs to get a ticket down below? How much? I read that it costs $1,750. So to get a ticket to the debate, you have to be fairly wealthy. Most working people that I know don't spend $1,700 to get a ticket to a debate, and that's problematic. But, you know, people, yeah, that's what the DNC did. Uh, but uh, at the end of the day, I felt very good about the debate because I think, you know, my opponents raised a whole lot of issues, and I think we were able to, to fight back effectively. I'm still standing, and uh, I'm looking forward uh, to the South Carolina uh, primary on Saturday and Super Tuesday on Tuesday. This is literally the same trick that the RNC used against Trump. And, by the way, they used it at the same time. How crazy is that? So, you know, I guess we sort of lucked out that the debates up to this point were not really done the same way. But in 2016, the South Carolina debate, um, every time Trump said anything, he got boos. And he stops at one point in the debate. He points at the audience. And he's in a back and forth with Jeb. He stops. He points at the audience. And he goes... See all these people out here, all these people booing? They're all Jeb's lobbyists and special interests. That's who it is. And by the way, Trump went on to win that debate. Um, and so now we're in South Carolina, the DNC, exact same situation. It costs about two grand to get a ticket to get in, and Bernie keeps getting booed. And by the way, Bloomberg keeps getting cheers. You trying to tell me that's organic Bloomberg support, bro? <laughs> 
Come on, son. Come on, dog. There's no organic Bloomberg support. It's all bought. It's all bought. Um, so the parallels are striking. They did the same thing to Trump. Bernie did it. Now, Bernie didn't. There was one point where Bernie like pointed at the audience, and I thought he was going to say, he was like, oh, pointing at him like that, like, oh, look at this. And I thought he was going to say a similar thing that Trump said, like, this is all, you know, these co- tickets cost two grand or whatever. Or, look, the lobbyists and special interests. I thought he'd say that. He didn't. But there was another point where he did, he did sort of stand up aggressively to the audience a little bit. And where he stood up aggressively, the issue was Cuba, and all the other candidates were piling on him. And he was basically like, Obama said the same thing I said. And the audience boos, and he's like, really? Really? That's just a fact. So, um, thankfully, a similar thing happened with the Trump debate. Uh, Trump ended up winning that debate, and the snap polls that we got immediately after the South Carolina debate showed that Bernie won. Now, it wasn't a crushing victory, to be clear. He had 45% to Biden's 43 or 42%. So it wasn't a crushing victory, but it was a victory. And I, I tend to agree with that breakdown, that, you know, Bernie did not have anywhere near his best performance, but it was sufficient given that he's a giant front runner. Um, and he said, oh, I'm looking forward to South Carolina and Super Tuesday coming up. Um, yeah, so I got to be honest with you guys, the polls right now in South Carolina don't look great. They just don't. So there was a brief moment, maybe about two weeks ago, where the polls showed Bernie was basically neck and neck with Biden. Uh, they were tied in some polls. And, but Biden had a giant lead leading up to two weeks ago, and then Bernie kind of closed that gap. And then a round of polls just came out today, and it shows Biden back up big time in South Carolina. Um, I'm talking 15, 20 points up. So, you know, even if that's soft support, he could still have a freaking five-point, ten-point victory, you know. Um, There's the whole conversation that we always have to have about, okay, but are the polls skewed to older voters? Are they, you know, are they not counting the people who make up the Bernie coalition effectively, which is young people and non-voters who are now becoming voters and whatever. Like, that's all a fair, legit conversation to have. But the, state, the snapshot of the race, as I talk to you right now, is Bernie will lose South Carolina. But then on Super Tuesday, he's supposed to really pile on the wins. So the South Carolina voting is Saturday, and then... Tuesday, like immediately after, two days after, boom, Tuesday is, super, is the Super Tuesday states. And whatever bump Biden gets is not going to be enough because he doesn't have organizations in the Super Tuesday states, and he hasn't stepped foot in them since last month. And Bernie's been campaigning all over the place. So, you know, even if Bernie loses, even if Bernie loses handily in South Carolina, that's actually not necessarily a reflection of what's going to happen upcoming on Super Tuesday. Um, so we'll see. And, and if you're really upset by that, just understand that, like, let's say hypothetically Bernie loses South Carolina and let's say he loses by a decent margin. Guys, you know, Trump only won 41 contests. Now that's a lot, but Ted Cruz won 11 contests. Uh, Marco Rubio won three and Kasich won one. That's 15 contests he didn't win. Now, um, the reason why that adds up to more than 50, by the way, is because you have to include U.S. territories and stuff. So just so everybody knows why the math is the way it is there, it's over 50. Um, but 
yeah, him went, losing 15 contests, and he still went on to win by a pretty sizable margin. So Bernie's won every one so far. <laughs> so if he happens to lose South Carolina, it's not the end of the world. Although it still is going to suck. It's still going to suck. It's still going to be like, ah, come on. So anyway, anyway, we'll see. But I like how Bernie is fighting back against the fact that the debate was effectively rigged. The audience was rigged. And uh, that's why virtually every time he opened his mouth, they did not react positively. Okay. Next. Next. We're moving off the debate, y'all. We're moving off the debate. It is official. We are off of the debate, and we are going to talk about the coronavirus. So President Trump just put Mike Pence, the vice president, in charge of dealing with bread of the coronavirus. So um, it's a virus that started in China, and it's now spreading worldwide, and uh, it's terrifying everybody. It's such a big deal that the Olympics, which is supposed to be held in Tokyo in the summer, they're saying, hey, listen, if this thing does not clear up by May, we're going to either postpone or cancel it. You don't like postpone or cancel something like the Olympics. So this has to be very, very, very serious. Um, so to give you the numbers on it, there have been about 82,000 cases as of right now, roughly. And uh, there's been about 3,000 deaths of those 82,000 cases. So, you know, I guess, some people might say, oh, that's only like whatever, a 2.5% death rate or whatever, but I don't know if that's a pretty large amount. <laughs> like if you get that thing, if you get it and it's like, hey, by the way, there's a 2.5% chance you're going to die now, I would be terrified. So I don't know why people would necessarily downplay that. I think the death rate from the flu is lower than that. Um and also, it impacts people differently. It depends how compromised your immune system is. Are you old? Are you young? Do you have pre-existing conditions? So on and so forth. Um, but what's terrifying as well is just the total lack of preparedness. It's amazing. So the CDC, Centers for Disease Control, HHS, Health and Human Services, um, and all the relevant you know, agencies that would fight back against this, they are totally unprepared. Trump's done budget cuts to those agencies. Um, he got rid of some pandemic experts that we had in the government. And, um, I mean, really, this is one of those instances where you see, like, incompetence and corruption and, like, the wrong philosophy can just have disastrous consequences. Because you want people who are, like, the top experts in the world working on this around the clock and doing everything they can and effectively, we got a bunch of idiots who didn't prioritize fighting back against something like a global pandemic. And it's like, okay, you're on your own. <laughs> and that's terrifying. They even alluded to, Trump gave his little speech yesterday, that's what this picture's from. And they even alluded to, like, hey, if it came to it, we have plans to quarantine entire cities. Quarantine entire cities. 
that's unbelievable. That's next level stuff. That's scary. That's scary is what that is. Um, and if you think, well, you know, hey, whatever, this is not the biggest deal in the world, I mean, go watch a documentary or go read about the Spanish flu that happened in the 19-teens. Might change your perspective. Because <laughs> that's one of those stories that you're just like, oh, so millions of people were wiped out casually willy-nilly because of a bad, uh, you know, strain of the flu, which is was deadly and spread very easily and... Um, we're just a bunch of idiots and we're waiting for the next one to hit. So really a scary stuff, but Mike Pence is now, uh, in charge and Trump did this as a way to try to like relax everybody. Like, all right, guys, don't worry. I've got Mike Pence working on this. Pence is a tremendous person, very smart guy, very intelligent. Um, and here's what you need to know about Mike Pence. And this should scare you even more. Mike Pence as governor of Indiana slashed uh, public health spending and delayed the introduction of needle exchange programs, which led to the state's worst outbreak of HIV. This is who, who is now in charge of dealing with a global pandemic. Also, he, um, he famously said that uh, he's not sure cigarettes cause cancer. Oh, that's great. And then, uh, I saved the best for last, he said this on the floor of Congress. Now that we've recognized evolution as a theory, uh, I would simply and humbly ask, uh, can we teach it as such? And can we also consider teaching other theories of the origin of species, like the theory that was believed in by every signer of the Declaration of Independence? Every signer of the Declaration of Independence believed that men and women were created and were endowed by that same creator with certain unalienable rights. The Bible tells us that God created man in his own image, male and female, he created them. And I believe that, Mr. Speaker. I believe that God created the known universe, the earth and everything in it, including man. And I also believe that someday scientists will come to see that only the theory of intelligent design provides even a remotely rational explanation for the known universe. The guy who's supposed to be in charge of a global pandemic doesn't even believe in evolution. You know, uh, I think to make sound decisions, you would want somebody who truly believes in science and scientists. There's no way you're going to make the proper decisions if you don't even have the scientific literacy enough to know that evolution is true. We're on our own, guys. We are on our own. We're on our own. So uh, my advice to you is avoid uh, places with large amounts of people. Constantly wash your hands. Um, stay away as much as possible. <laughs> you know, bury yourself in your own uh, house or apartment or whatever. Like, because um, we're definitely on our own. I don't trust these guys at all. And that's a terrifying thought, but it's the state of reality that we have right now. And I do have to say that this is one of those situations where, like, oftentimes we talk about how there is a genuine equivalence between the Democrats and the Republicans. And the two parties are both massively corrupt, 
And, uh, you know, they both represent the interests of Wall Street and the military industrial complex um, and the for-profit insurance companies and all this stuff. That's all true. That's all true. However, I will say this is one of those areas where there is no equivalence. I think that whoever Obama would have put in control of such a thing would have been totally competent and would have dealt with it like a professional. Whereas this group of idiots, there's no way they're going to handle this intelligently. Okay. So Project Veritas is um, a right-wing group, and they try to do these exposés on the left where they have these, like, hidden camera things, and they go after people, and they try to get them to, like, be comfy and relaxed and to, like, let it all hang out, and then they take things out of context and go, aha, gotcha. My favorite one is they just did it to some Bernie Sanders staffer, and, um, you know, the dude, I guess the dude was a communist or whatever. Who cares? And they were like, yeah, got him. And uh, this was one of those instances where even corporate media, and corporate media hates Bernie, but even they were like, oh, yeah, I don't care. Who cares? <laughs> so, um, you know, they don't always knock it out of the park, but sometimes they get stories that catch on. There was the Planned Parenthood one from a long time ago. And now we have one that for whatever reason it caught on. Uh, there's an ABC reporter by the name of David Wright, and um, he was talking to one of these undercover Project Veritas people, and let's see what they caught him saying, and then we'll discuss. Thank you. 
giant news organizations in the past couple weeks who've accused the person who would be our first Jewish president of being a Nazi. Chris Matthews did it. Mark Levin did it. They work, one works for NBC, MSNBC, NBC. The other one works for uh, Fox News and maybe the Blaze too. Um, and they compared Bernie Sanders clearly to Nazis and they didn't get nothing but a slap on the wrist in Chris Matthews' case, nothing in the case of Mark Levin, nothing. That's fine, but just admitting what your beliefs are openly and honestly, that you deserve to get fired for that. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Wait a second. Everybody in media should do what he just did right there. I want to know what all of them are thinking. I want them to come at, hey, I consider myself a centrist and I'm a Kamala supporter. Hey, you know, I'm a libertarian and I'm, my favorite uh, politician is Rand Paul. Hey, I was a huge Hillary Clinton supporter, and, you know, I consider myself socially liberal but fiscally conservative. Every single person in media should be open and honest and upfront about what their beliefs are. 
because that's true. That's the truth. That's full disclosure. That's why when you watch this show, I tell you all the time, I'll call myself populist left or libertarian left or a believer in social democracy, and my presidential candidate that I support is Bernie Sanders. See, that's called honesty. Now, you couldn't like that or not like that. It's totally fine. Plenty of people don't like it. Totally cool. But I'm not hiding anything from you. I'm putting it all out there. Now, this guy, hearing David Wright talk, my guess is he would be totally fine with letting everybody know in one of his columns or whatever, in the headline or, or as a header on, you know, when he writes an article, I consider myself a socialist. I'm sure he'd be totally fine with that. But it's the mantra of corporate media to do uh, fake neutrality, where everybody has to pretend we are all robots and none of us have any beliefs or any opinions at all. We are totally objective. And the funny thing is they conflate objectivity and neutrality. They're not the same thing. Neutrality means always saying everything is 50-50, and objectivity just means telling the truth. They conflate those things. They think neutrality is objectivity, and it's not. And so they want everybody, make sure you don't let anybody know you've ever had an opinion ever, and just write articles. And that's ridiculous. And, you know, it's really funny that, so Project Veritas is so outraged about this. Okay, are you outraged about the fact that, I don't know, um, Sean Hannity is a Republican and he's a conservative and he has a, a show on a major network? If it's a problem that this guy's a socialist, shouldn't it also be a problem that that guy's a, a Republican and a conservative? And you can fill in the blank with, you know, whatever host you want to. Are you mad that Neil Cavuto is a conservative? Are you, see, it's funny because all they're trying to, aha, bias. But it's not, and by the way, he's also thoroughly critiquing the media in a way that many right-wingers have done before, too, and correctly, by the way. So let's go through some of that. They fired him. I can't believe they fired him over this. That's insanity. That's insanity. Okay. So he says, I love this, and how they try to make it out like this guy's bad. He says, you know, we don't hold Trump to account. We also don't give him credit when he deserves it. Hold on, Project Veritas. Shouldn't you be doing a big thing like, breaking ABC news reporter thinks we should be more fair to Trump. That's a criticism I've made on this show before. And I think his producer goes on to make the point. Hey, listen, man, real people care about real issues. And we're out here talking about impeachment. We're out here talking about mean tweets and the news of the day and who's backstabbing who in the administration. And that's nonsense. That's silly. When we attack him over that, it makes him stronger, you know, and we don't talk about issues. We don't go after him. We don't hold him to account on actual issues. And we don't give him credit on actual issues. You know, my guess is a guy like David Wright would say something like, he should have gotten more credit for the First Step Act. Or he should have got more credit for killing TPP. Like, that's what he's saying. He's like, let's be more substantive and give credit where it's due and also critique where it's due on, health, on uh, important issues like health care. Like, I'm sure David Wright is aware of the fact that 7 million people lost their health insurance under Trump. That's something to critique. That's substantive. And what he's saying is we don't do that. We focus on the dumb stuff, the Mueller report, impeachment, the tweets of the day. So that is a totally fair criticism and one that many people on the right have made. It's unbelievable that this, that this unfolded the way it did. Um, he goes on to say the media doesn't speak truth to power and it doesn't hold people to account. Isn't that what the right says all the time? Oh, my God, the media is not you know, telling the truth. The media is just a bunch of hacks. That's, that's what he's saying. Um, he says ABC went on to become a profit and promotion center. Again, this is exactly what 
you guys make this point all the time, right-wingers. And now somebody says, yeah, I agree with you on that. You're like, aha, gotcha. What do you mean? He's agreeing with you on something. Um, so, yeah, this, I mean, this is really upsetting. It really is. Because it shows, I don't know why people fold so easy to, like, BS fake outrage. It's not that hard to be like, no. <laughs> Just be like, no, wrong. No, I don't care. Next. That's all you got to do. Instead of, oh, you have a video of somebody being completely reasonable. Fired. Listen, I would say even to people who are right-wingers, even to people who might be fans of this Project Veritas stuff, go back, watch that video three or four times, and then tell me you don't think this guy is actually one of the good ones. Okay, there's plenty of people in corporate media who I despise and they despise, and we'll go after them all day with a smile on our faces. But this guy saying stuff like, we don't hold Trump to account on serious issues. We also don't give him credit when he deserves it. The media doesn't speak truth to power. They don't hold uh, powerful people to account. And, oh, the, I think the big thing that the right is mad about is, oh, he calls himself a, dem a democratic socialist. Or he says, I'm even beyond that. I'm a socialist. So what? So what? I'm not even a socialist. Like I said, I'm a social democrat. But I don't care that this guy's to the left of me. It's fine. And it's fine to have people to the right of me. I just want full disclosure. And I know this guy has no problem doing full disclosure. So really, this isn't an expose of David Wright. This is more of an expose of ABC News. If this story was framed in that way, I think it would be a hell of a lot better. But I read the comment section on this video, and all these people are like hating on David Wright and cheering the fact that he got fired. And it's like, wow, so you guys are the same. You're totally part of the cancel culture that you claim to despise. That's what it is. You're completely part of the cancel, cancel culture that you claim to despise. Because if you want this guy fired, you're nothing but a snowflake. So that's really upsetting, man. And I feel really bad for David Wright. I hope he finds a new job, and I hope he's all right, because this is not okay. He said nothing wrong. He did nothing wrong. He's really honest. And actually, after reading this, it makes me want to go back and look at some of his work over the years, because he appears to be have his mind in the exact right place. Next. <clears throat> Joe Biden. So this next story is so dirty that it's actually adorable. Like, I'm not even mad at it because there's a kind of a cute angle to it. So listen to this. Senior congressional Democratic leadership has been approached by a well-known mega donor who encouraged them to endorse a Democratic presidential candidate who isn't Bernie Sanders, CNBC reports. Bernard Schwartz, the CEO of BLS Investments, has recently reached out to both Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, uh, according to CNBC, Quote, we should know who, who is the best person to be Donald Trump, and with all due respect, Bernie Sanders cannot be Trump. <clears throat> Untrue, all the polls show he's the best to be Trump. Schwartz told the network, quote, they have good political reasons not to endorse until the primary is over, but I think we are losing too much if we give up on this position, Schwartz added. According to CNBC, Schwartz didn't direct Pelosi and Schumer toward a specific alternative candidate, but he is a major backer of former Vice President Joe Biden's campaign. Here's why this is adorable. So you got this like billionaire investor who's a mega donor, who's a corrupt elitist, like the definition of all of that. And 
he calls up Pelosi and Schumer, and he's like, I need you to put a stop to this. <laughs> As if, like, let's say today, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi came out and said, we're endorsing whoever, fill in the blank, Mayor Pete, Joe Biden, Amy Klobuchar, whoever, it doesn't matter, one of the centrists, any of them, Bloomberg, he's a right-winger, so I mean, just a centrist, he's terrible, he's the worst. The idea that that would be enough, like, oh, okay, boom, you see a giant spike in the polls of like 30% for one of those people, which, by the way, is kind of what they need in order to win, a giant spike of like 25-30%. They shoot up in the polls, and then boom, everything's hunky-dory, the the center goes on to win, and Bernie Sanders is destroyed. (laughs) Nobody likes Schumer and Pelosi. I forget, okay, you can't quote me on this because I forget exactly what the number was. But I'm pretty sure the approval rating for Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, it's like under 30%. So you're begging some of the most unpopular people in the country to come out and make an endorsement, and you think that's going to sway the race in your favor. If anything, that might have the backlash effect. You know, it's the same thing as like, you know, if, like, remember when Mitt Romney, oh, this is a perfect analogy, and it just came to me. I'm so happy I remember it. Remember in 2016 when they were like, oh, my God, we have to stop Trump. The Republican establishment was saying that. And then Mitt Romney came out and gave a speech and, like, ripped Donald Trump to shreds. And then Trump went up in the polls (laughs) because everybody was like, I don't like Mitt Romney. You know, not that I like Trump, but Mitt Romney's more annoying than him. Mitt Romney just lost in 2012, and now he's presenting himself as like, all right, I got this, guys. Bro, you're a loser. What are you doing? Nobody likes you. This is like the same thing. Like, oh, come on, come on, Chuck, Nancy, go ahead, put an end to this. It's like the billionaire's like, Bernie, I will call your manager. <laughs> oh, it's adorable. Oh, it's so adorable. I, I really do find it adorable. I really do find it funny. Um, <laughs> and I don't know if they're actually going to do it because Nancy Pelosi actually said the other day, surprisingly, that... Um, Hey, man, listen, if it's Bernie Sanders, we're going to back him in the general, whatever, yada, yada. Which, funny enough, I actually think that's what happened with Paul Ryan, too. Paul Ryan didn't endorse Trump, didn't speak out against Trump. He just kind of said towards the end, like, yeah, if it's him, it is what it is. So there's so many parallels between now and the 2016 race. But I do find it absolutely adorable that some billionaire elitist is like, all right, all the fun is over, fellas. Let's put it into this Bernie Sanders thing, huh? As if they have the ability to do that. All right, now we go to um, one of the most insane lies you've ever heard in politics, and that's not a stretch. So Joe Biden was caught in an absolutely absurd lie while campaigning in South Carolina. This day, 30 years ago, Nelson Mandela walked out of prison and entered into discussions about apartheid. I had the great honor of meeting him. I had the great honor of being arrested with our UN ambassador on the streets of Soweto trying to get to see him on Robbins Island. So when people heard this, everybody's like, whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. You were arrested while trying to see Nelson Mandela. That's a big story. In fact, it's so big, it had to be like reported at the time, right? 
right? So they went back and they were like, huh, that's weird. Seems to be no evidence of that. That UN ambassador that you just referenced, that guy's still around. They went and asked that guy. That guy's like, no, didn't happen. <laughs> Joe, what are you doing, Joe? What are you doing? He's at, he acts like he's still stuck way back in the day when there weren't cameras at every single event. Bro, you're on tape. You're on video. What are you doing? That's a Trumpian level lie. That might even eclipse a Trumpian lie. Well, no, Trump has told some amazing ones in his life. <laughs> the, I, I didn't go bankrupt is one of my favorites when his businesses went bankrupt at least six times. When he said, that, was, that wasn't me, the John Miller, remember the John Miller story where he would call people at these magazines and tell them amazing stories about himself and he was pretending like he was Trump's publicist, John Miller. He's like, nope, that wasn't me. Nope, not even true. Not even. And it's like, bro, we hear your voice. It's right on the thing. He's like, nope, not me. So I would say it's a Trumpian lie. It doesn't eclipse a Trumpian lie. I don't know if you could do that, but what are you doing? And, uh, I mean, listen, the optics of this are terrible too. South Carolina... A lot of the Democratic voters there are people of color, they're black folks, and you like went out of your way to tell a lie specifically about a historical figure who's very important in the black community the world over, Nelson Mandela. I mean, what a hero. And you tell a lie like that? Guys, if Bernie Sanders told that lie, do you have any idea what the backlash would be? They would be screaming for him to drop out. They'd say this is unforgivable. Look at this. He's got to lie in order to look more appealing to black voters. How sad is that? How pathetic is that? Drop out. You're shameful what you just did. Shameful. Get out of here. But when it's Joe Biden, not much talk about it. There's been, to be fair, there's been some articles that covered it, which is good. But um, there's really not much talk. Certainly they've ignored it in mainstream media. They're, like, effectively trying to bury it. And um, his, even his campaign, like, casually backed off of it. Took a couple steps back. But this, I mean, it's so amazing. Like, he could just do this and kind of get away with it because he's got a media apparatus that's not really doing their job well. And by the way, Biden is not their favorite candidate. He's just not. I think that the media would much rather have um, Mayor Pete. I think the media would much rather have Klobuchar. Um, Even Warren, they're kind of okay with now. But they're not, like... Biden, they're not too hot on, and then Bloomberg, they actually dislike, kind of, which I'm happy about, because he's giving them so much money that, at least in the case of local outlets, he is buying their support, or at least their non-criticism at the local level. But yeah, like the the CNN level, they're not the biggest fans of him. There's just too much there that they can't, in a Democratic primary, you can't, like, bury all of those terrible things about him, because everything about him is terrible. But this what should be a story that's a huge story, and it's just not as big as it, as it necessitates. Because what a, why, who lies about that? Why would you do that? Why would you do that? And then meanwhile, of course, he's lying about me. I was fighting with Nelson Mandela. I was on his side, and I got arrested going to see him. I'm a civil rights hero, some would say. Bro, you were against busing back then. He worked with segregationists and bragged about it. I'm not making this up. That's the historical record. Meanwhile... There's, you know, pictures of Bernie Sanders getting arrested protesting for civil rights. Involved in the civil rights movement with Martin Luther King Jr. But I can't bring that up. That's distasteful to bring up your accurate history. But lie about your history if you're Biden, totally fine. Oh, come on, man.
Oh. And the poll show right now, he's leading in South Carolina, and he's very likely to win the state of South Carolina. If there was justice in the world, that wouldn't be the case. So a big article dropped in the New York Times about Biden, and this is what we learned. Given South Carolina, you'd think Biden is best placed to challenge Sanders, but he's entirely banking on South Carolina creating a headline bang that gives him a huge boost in three days. Aside from fundraising, he has not campaigned in a Super Tuesday state in over a month. In over a month. Okay, no, 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 that's that's a stunning fact. That is an earth-shattering, race-changing fact. Unbelievable. Okay, so you're probably thinking, all right, well, let's stop here. Let's be reasonable. Let's think this through. If that's the case, well, then I'm sure that Biden carpet-bombed the airwaves with ads in those states, right? Because you have to have some presence there. We're in a presidential election. Ready for this? Bloomberg has spent $183 million in Super Tuesday states. Sanders, $13 million. Biden, six figures. This is, in big part, the story makes clear, a story about Biden not just have, or excuse me, a story about Biden just not having money. We know Bloomberg's entry changed wealthy donors' calculus, and here's the result. I cannot describe to you how big of a story this is. So for this article, the New York Times went to uh, California. Joe Biden has one office in all of California. Wait, it gets better. And to put that in perspective, Bernie Sanders, the front runner, how many offices does he have in California? 23. So they go there. Biden's got one office. The door is padlocked. (laughs) What? Okay. No, he's not. Like, you don't get it. Uh, People who know politics will get this reference, but 93% of you won't get this because I'm going all the way back to 2008 now. But this is what Fred Thompson did. Fred Thompson ran on the Republican side trying to get the nomination, and... He was doing okay in the polls, and then everything just collapsed. And the the stories from the campaign trail were, because he didn't campaign. He would show up to a state and be like, all right, let's go to the bar. (laughs) And he would go have some drinks, and he wouldn't even have events. Or whatever events he did have, you know, he was late to them. He didn't have nearly as many as the other people. He didn't have offices set up anywhere. And it was just amateur hour. Guys, we're talking about a former vice president. On paper, you would think, oh, well, there's one thing that's going to be there for him, the organization. No, it's not. It's not. He hasn't stepped foot in a Super Tuesday state in over a month. The, the Arkansas Democratic Party Twitter account tweeted this article out and said, you're going to have to come earn our vote. He hasn't showed up here in forever. 
Okay, this is colossally embarrassing. The media should be talking about this endlessly. Guys, he's going to implode. Even if he wins South Carolina, Super Tuesday voting happens two days after. You think there's going to be enough of a media bump to take him from like 5% in the polls, 10% in the polls, and even get him above the 15% threshold in most of those states? No way. And now with Bloomberg involved, carpet bombing the airways with ads, he's got more. Bloomberg has more of a presence in Super Tuesday states than Joe Biden does. And Bloomberg is totally astroturfed as a candidate. It's all bought. All of his support is bought. Everything. Turns out when Donald Trump nicknamed Joe Biden Sleepy Joe, he wasn't playing, dog. This is the sleepiest shit I've ever seen in my life. He's not even campaigning for president. Super two, that's where it's all at. That's where it's all at, man. Holy cow. So listen, here's the good news that comes out of this story is if you're a Bernie supporter, even if Bernie loses South Carolina, and Joe, to, to his credit, has put plenty of resources and time into South Carolina, but even if Bernie loses South Carolina, honestly, that's not going to change Dickie McGee's acts. Because when you look, and I did this the other night, I looked at all the polls, the Super Tuesday polls. Bernie's leading in like almost all of the states on Super Tuesday. Now, maybe that's subject to a couple point swing in one direction or another after South Carolina, but that ain't enough to, to put Biden over the top. It looks like after South Carolina, poll show he wins South Carolina. Let's assume that for a second. After that, Not only is he in for a loss, he's in for being embarrassed. What an amazing story this is, man. Sleepy Joe, indeed, is very, very, very sleepy. And um, his own lack of campaigning and attempt to coast on his own name recognition may have completely doomed him. Okay, now I'm going to do, let me do one more here. This will be a little bit of a makeshift segment because I didn't have it officially prepped. Let me just add a graphic for behind me. I'll put the the secular talk uh, graphic there. It's always a go-to. Wait for it. Almost got it set up. This is what, this is what happens when you do a makeshift uh, story. You got to scramble at the last minute. Okay, here we go. I might do two makeshift stories because these, uh, these are pretty important. Okay. So there's been an endless amount of um, political content out there because of the election these days. You've had like a thousand town halls. They're happening like every other night on CNN. Then you had the South Carolina debate. It wasn't even that long ago that we had the Nevada debate. It's just they're hitting you over and over and over and over. Even me, and I'm a political junkie, even I'm like, okay, okay, I tap out. No more, no more. Well, uh, last night, Elizabeth Warren had a town hall with uh, CNN. And she was asked a very good question by a Bernie supporter. And her answer here is disheartening to say the least. 
but it's honestly it's even beyond disheartening and it's dishonest. So let's see what she had to say, and then I'll respond. Hi, Jason. Hey, now, Senator Warren. Welcome to Charleston. Thank you. During the Nevada debate, you and every other candidate on the stage, except for Bernie, hello, somebody, indicated that the candidate with the plurality of delegates should not necessarily be the nominee. Uh-huh. This essentially means the will of the voters could be denied by the superdelegates and the DNC, which is basically undemocratic, and in my opinion, is a bunch of baba booey, to put it politely. Can you explain why the will of the voters should not matter if no candidate reaches a majority of delegates? So you do know that was Bernie's position in 2016. Not necessarily, no. Yeah. He, he won 22 states so, he went to the No, that was Florida. Bernie's position in 2016, that it should not go to the person who had a plurality. Okay. So, and remember, his last, his last play was to superdelegates. So the way I see this is you write the rules before you know where everybody stands, and then you stick with those rules. So for me, Bernie had a big hand in writing these rules. I didn't write them, uh, but Bernie did when uh, we were putting they were putting together the 2016 platforms, the Democratic conventions. Those are the rules that he wanted to write and others wanted to write. Everybody got in the race thinking that was the set of rules. I don't see how come you get to change it just because he now thinks there's an advantage to him to do. I gotta follow that. I got the Hollywood reference that came out, by the way, Jason. So listen, Senator Warren, to be clear, would you continue your fight for the uh, Democratic nomination even if another candidate arrived at the convention ahead of you in the delegate count? Yes. You you would continue. Why? Because a lot of people made $5 contributions to my campaign to keep me in it. In fact, after that last Democratic debate, a quarter of a million people came to ElizabethWarren.com and said, we want you in this race. So that is uh, really upsetting. Her position is bad enough, and we'll talk about that in a second, but she's just flat out not telling the truth about Bernie's position. So Bernie's position was to totally eliminate superdelegates. And he was forced to compromise and leave them on the second ballot. Okay? So they, they made adjustments. It used to be the case that they were on the first ballot. Um, the left position was just eliminate them. They're undemocratic. That was Bernie's position. That was the entire left-wing movement's position and the corporatists were like, no, but we'll meet you halfway and we'll push off superdelegates to the second ballot. So she's lying about his position. Now, beyond that, she says, oh, well, in 2016, he wanted to override uh, the will of the people and he didn't want the plurality to determine the winner. That's also not true. So back then, and you guys will probably remember this if you were following politics closely back then, they used to count superdelegates up front, and even on like CNN when the results would roll in on an MSNBC, they would count the superdelegates before any of the votes were cast. So oftentimes you would see like the race hadn't happened yet, and Hillary Clinton, for argument's sake, had like 10 already on her side, and Bernie had zero. 
And the argument I was making and many people were making at the time is like, well, hold on now. That's ridiculous. That's unfair. And there were multiple contests where Bernie crushed in the popular vote and beat Hillary. But since Hillary had superdelegates, she actually won the state. Stop and think about that. Massively undemocratic, incredibly undemocratic. So for Bernie to say, okay, you know, that's not okay. I've won a bunch of states and you've taken, you've taken away my victory in an undemocratic fashion. So I would like to not have that happen. That's very different than how Elizabeth Warren is portraying Bernie Sanders' position here. And then on top of that, guys, Bernie hung around until the convention. One of the most important reasons, and you go back and watch my show, watch TYT, everybody talked about this at the time. One of the main reasons he was hanging around until the end was not only to correct the record and get like the accurate count, because again, it was biased against him. He would win states and then lose in the delegate count. He won with the proper delegates to be reflected, but also because... Um, Hillary was under FBI investigation, and if she were to get indicted and face federal charges, what would or should the DNC do? What would be the proper course of action in that situation? What would be the proper course of action if the Democratic nominee, presumptive Democratic nominee, is indicted on federal crimes and you know, theoretically, could face prison time. What do you do? Well, you know, it'd be nice to have another uh, plan, another option, in case something like that happened, which was a very real possibility. Now, it turned out, you know, you guys all remember how that unfolded. There was, who was it? Was it Comey who came out and gave this tortured uh, logic speech where he was like, even though she kind of broke the law, there's nothing we could do about it for reasons X, Y, and Z. And so that didn't end up happening. But you should, he should stay until the convention just for that alone. For that alone, it makes sense um, to stay in until the end. So she's really just flat out misstating what his position is here. And then also, I haven't brought up the obvious point, which is you guys are probably screaming at it, screaming at me in your heads over this. Um, we learned from WikiLeaks, now it doesn't matter whether you like, dislike WikiLeaks, irrelevant, but we learned from their leaks that they were rigging the primary against Bernie. That's not conjecture. That's a fact. The DNC was taking orders from the Clinton campaign. The Clinton campaign got last word on press releases from the DNC. They were like this. There was no distinction between the DNC and the Clinton campaign. They were one and the same. They were rigging the primary. We learned so much. We learned about, you know, Donna Brazil giving Hillary Clinton the debate questions beforehand. It was a very, very dirty process. So one could argue at face value alone, he wasn't given a fair chance up front. There wasn't an actual Democratic vote that happened. So the argument is, oh, hold on, except the fact that I rigged it with superdelegates, except the fact that the Clinton campaign and the DNC were one and the same and they were rigging it against Bernie. And then if Bernie tries to say, I'm going to the convention to try to correct some of the wrongs here, somehow he's being undemocratic? No, 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 no. You're simply misstating his position. Now, the final point is, guys, Warren is delusional if she thinks that the establishment would pick her at a brokered convention as a compromise candidate, because that's the argument that she's presenting publicly. 
She's saying, hey, look, I'm going to stay in because if it gets to the convention and nobody has a majority, I will try to become the nominee behind the scenes, basically, is what she's saying. And she thinks like, oh, I've made enough inroads with the establishment where they'll accept me as the middle point between somebody like Biden and somebody like Bernie. And my message for her is, you're kidding yourself. They don't like you. And effectively, you sold out for nothing, Warren, because I got news for you. They didn't forget about the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. They didn't forget about the fact that you want to raise taxes on Wall Street and you want to regulate Wall Street. These people who would be making this decision are massively corrupt and bought by the special interests. They're not going to pick somebody who threatens them even 1%. Now, there are many issues where Elizabeth Warren is very establishment. And really, on paper, she is the middle point between somebody like Biden and somebody like Bernie. But that's irrelevant. They don't like you. And that's not going to happen. And by the way, if you were, let's say hypothetically, let's give her everything she's saying here. Okay, boom. Contested convention, they give you the nomination, you get to the general election. You want to talk about destroying whatever remnants of a legacy you have left? You would go down in history as somebody who lost to Donald Trump in a landslide. That's what would happen. Any contested convention hands the election to Trump, full stop. It doesn't matter what the outcome is. Any contested convention hands the election to Trump, full stop. Whoever wins a plurality should win. If you get a plurality or a majority, either one of those things, you got the most votes, you should win. I think that's very simple. And somebody tweeted at me last night and said, okay, I don't agree with you about what Bernie's position was, but let's assume that what you're saying is true. Okay, then why shouldn't Elizabeth Warren stay in the race Because what if, let's say, hypothetically, knock on wood, Bernie Sanders passes away? Wouldn't you want Warren in the race then so she hangs around until the convention and then she could be picked in a situation like that? And my response to that person was very simple. No. It should be whoever got the second most votes in that scenario. That's what it should be. Why? Because that's what makes the most sense. That is the most democratic position, even if it's a plurality, even if it's a tiny plurality. That person got the most votes of the remaining candidates. And lest you think I'm a hypocrite about this or whatever, no. I actually said multiple times on my show um, back in 2016 that the only occasion where I would be okay with, and this was before we knew about the rigging, to be fair, okay, but I said only if Hillary's indicted and it looks like she might literally face, like, prison time and then she tanks in the polls, like, 15 points. Only in a situation like that would I be okay with Bernie becoming the nominee, and I said, listen, if you got fewer votes, you got fewer votes. And as a matter of principle, I'm not going to support you being the nominee in that situation. I will argue against you, even if you're my preferred candidate. I think as a matter of principle, if you get more votes, you deserve to be the candidate. Full stop. Full stop. Again, this was before we knew about the rigging. That adds a whole other complicated factor. <laughs> but that was my position back then. And so I'm consistent on it. That's my position now, too. If it's a plurality or if it's a majority, you got more votes, you should be the nominee. But they're trying to, like, hypocrisy burn Bernie by saying, oh, your position was the opposite in 2016, but it really wasn't. It really wasn't. He has always had the position to eliminate superdelegates. And he impacted these rules. His position was, let's eliminate them, and then they ended up going with the middle path with the corporatists and the middle path being only have the superdelegates on the second ballot. So really they're completely misstating Bernie's position here. She is. And that's really disappointing.
Okay. You know what? I'm going to do one more um, last-minute story type situation deal. All right, here we go. This one is Bernie style. So right before I came on air, we got some uh, some breaking news. This is really this is just depressing, but we can't say it's unexpected because it's not. The New York Times has interviewed 93 Democratic Party officials, all of them superdelegates, who could have a say on the nominee at the Democratic convention and found overwhelming opposition to handing Bernie Sanders, the Vermont senator, the nomination. So if Bernie Sanders wins a plurality, even if he wins a strong plurality, let's say he gets 45% of the vote. They say, oh, no, we're going to try to take the nomination from him. Now they're on the record. Now we know. Gotcha. Let's be clear. If this is the case, that Bernie Sanders um, gets the most votes but doesn't get the nomination, I will be in Milwaukee. I've already gotten messages from a bunch of people who I know who are like, no, no, I'll be there right along with you. And I know that many of you watching this right now will drop whatever the hell you're doing, no matter how important it is, and you will be in Milwaukee too. And we will march on the DNC. I've seen, I've seen stories that they're, uh, Milwaukee is dumping a bunch of money into increased law enforcement around the convention. Hmm, I wonder why. Now, I'm a deep believer in nonviolent, peaceful resistance. I think it's the most productive form of protest. I think it's the most moral form of protest. And I will do everything in my power to make sure that everybody remains peaceful. However, we're going to get our way. Bernie Sanders will be the nominee if he gets a plurality of votes. And if they try to steal it from him, God help us all. God help us all. Because here's the bottom line, guys. If they steal it from him, Donald Trump gets a second term, no doubt about it. So this would be the Democratic Party saying to us, I would prefer a right-wing administration to a social Democrat. There's no, uh, there's no two ways about it. That's the only interpretation you could take away. I would prefer a far-right president to a social Democrat. Because... The things Bernie is pushing for threatens their donors. The Democratic Party is also funded by lobbyists and special interests and Wall Street and Big Pharma and the military-industrial complex. They're funded by them as well, just like the Republican establishment is. So they want to protect those donors at all costs. So a Bernie Sanders administration coming in and saying we're going to tax Wall Street We're going to raise taxes on billionaires, raise taxes on the rich. We're going to regulate Wall Street. We're going to stop the fraud. We're going to do Medicare for all, free college, a living wage. We're going to end the wars. This threatens the powerful. And they would literally rather have a Republican in office, Donald Trump. They'd rather have him get a second term than Bernie Sanders get a first term. That, in no uncertain terms, that's what they're saying here, because Donald Trump is guaranteed to win re-election and win re-election comfortably if there's a contested convention. 
So they're, they're, they are telling us what they are, who they are here. That's what this is. Thank you. We now know we were right all along. There's a democratic civil war going on. And one of the sides quite literally is more comfortable with fascists than they are with socialists. And Bernie isn't even a socialist. He's a Democrat. He's a, he's, he says he's a democratic socialist, but he's not even that. He's a social democrat. He's trying to complete FDR's New Deal vision. He's, in terms of policy positions, the overwhelming majority of the American people are with him on almost every issue. So you're putting your middle finger up to the American people to protect the corporatists, to protect the elites, to protect the lobbyists. And you'd be willing to let Trump win a second term to screw Bernie and screw the left and screw the people. It would be the destruction of the Democratic Party. Absolutely. But now they're on record. Okay, got you. So we know up front, try our absolute best to win a majority, okay? But also, if we have to go there, we'll be there. We'll be there. If he wins the plurality but not a majority, we'll be there. Now, I will say the good news is, um, as of right now, I thought that it was like, I thought I saw uh, one of the odds trackers that said it's a 70% chance Bernie wins a majority on the first ballot. But I went back and checked, and um, it appears to be 43% chance of a contested convention and 43% chance that Bernie wins outright. And then the rest of the candidates are, you know, pretty low at the moment. Um, So it's basically even money, whether it's a contested convention, whether he wins a majority and he wins it on the first ballot, or it's a plurality and it goes to the second ballot and they try to steal it. But we got to try to get him over that threshold, man. It is super important because they're going to do everything they can to stop an ascendant populist left wing, and they will destroy the Democratic Party in the process, and they will destroy the country in the process, and they will hand Trump a giant gift. Okay. All right, we're done, y'all. I love you. We'll talk to you soon. Everybody have um, a great rest of your day and a great weekend. I am out. Peace.